I hope you've had a great week. Um, I've had an interesting week. I've had a week of lots of different conversations and been in very difficult circumstances in different communities, but it culminated on Friday with uh, officiating the easiest funeral that I've ever officiated in 18 years of officiating funerals. Uh, My grandmother had passed away a week ago, and she was 84. Her husband had uh, died a few years ago, my grandfather, and she had spent most of her adult life caring for my grandfather. Uh, He lost his hearing early on. He was never in a space where he could take care of himself fully, and he was a World War II veteran that had a lot of perspectives on the world that caused him trouble, right? So he ended up in divisive conversations all of the time. And my grandmother was always the mediator. She was always helping. She was always serving. And it's really easy to perform a funeral for someone whose life has been defined as a servant, who's always been there helping people and encouraging people, who's always had a few extra dollars in her purse just in case she's at a restaurant and sees someone who couldn't afford a Wendy's Frosty because in her mind, everyone always needed a Wendy's Frosty at the end of a meal. She always just had a little bit extra. And so it's a really easy funeral for me to officiate because it was the funeral for someone who served so much, there was so much information to share about her. We've been in the, in the book of Daniel, and Daniel is really a book about two kingdoms that are being built. One is the kingdom of me, and we see that as it's being established through the kings of Babylon and the way in which the kingdom of God interacts with these kings. And then there's the kingdom of us that we see interpreted through the journey of Daniel and his friends who have been exiled from Israel into Babylon as they were dispersed, as the nation was dispersed, because the enemies of the kingdom of God or the enemies of Israel had all realized that whenever we put Israel in captivity and we leave them together, bad things usually happen for us over a few years. They had learned their lesson from the Egyptians and they thought, we shouldn't keep Israel together. We should separate them so that if they want to rebel, they can't be together and rebel against us. And so we end up with Daniel and his friends that are in Babylon, and we've seen over the past few weeks that their journey has been one of success and affirmation as they have chosen to serve two different ways. First, they have chosen to serve God before all others, and then they chose to serve God before all others in the context of the kingdom that they had been placed. And so we had seen in Daniel chapter 1 where Daniel had chosen to serve within this kingdom, but to serve based on a restricted diet and a discipline that allowed him to serve the God that he worshipped above all else. And it brought honor to the kingdom that he was in because he and his friends became stronger and more apt to be able to lead, which is a benefit to where they were living. When you invest in the community where you live and you bring the strength of who you are based on the God that you serve, the community responds and says, we can't live without you. And so for Daniel in that moment, it's right, the, 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 
the military leaders were going, why would we change their diet? Like, they're faster than you. They're stronger than you. They're more mentally apt than you. That is a good benefit for us if we go to war. Keeping you strong keeps us strong. And so it influenced the community in which they were living in. In Daniel chapter 2, we saw that because Daniel had been blessed as someone who could interpret the visions and dreams of those around him, that he became a benefit to the king, to Nebuchadnezzar, and he translated a dream for him. And he even translated it in such a way that he knew that he was playing to this arrogance of Nebuchadnezzar. That Nebuchadnezzar would see it and go, oh yeah, Babylon is the gold head of the statue. I like that. In chapter 3, it went back to who will you serve? And Azariah Mishael and Hananiah had to respond to that moment of do we serve God above this community or has this community taken precedence over our God? And we saw in that story how they believed that God would save them, but then they responded with a, but if, if he doesn't, we're okay. And it was still illustrating within these two kingdoms, the kingdom of me and the kingdom of us, that the kingdom of us, God continues to bless and to move forward as it reflects him as king And he is engaging this kingdom through the context of a separate community. In Daniel chapter 4, we actually see the deconstruction of the kingdom of us and the construction of the kingdom of me in this story. I love telling stories, and so we're going to go through the first part of this chapter just in kind of a story form, and then we're going to dial into a little bit of the context of the verses. Daniel chapter 4 begins with this king, Nebuchadnezzar, having witnessed everything that we just spoke of from the point of authority and leadership. Right? So he starts chapter 4 with this writing, this decree, this actual piece of public propaganda is how chapter 4 begins. He is speaking to what he says, the nations, the people, the tribe, the languages that are around. In Hebrew text, when you saw a letter start with a, this is to the nations and the languages, it was a letter to the everybody else I can reach. It was public propaganda. Look at the book of Esther. The book of Esther is actually given the same type of propaganda that is sent out from the king that actually says, here, men, you're in charge of your houses. And oh, by the way, we're going to kill all of the Jews. Those are public propagandas that are actually said to all of the nations, to everyone that's out there. So in the beginning of chapter 4, we're given the start of this letter that a king has sat down and he is beginning to write a letter to everyone. And he starts this letter by saying, I should write to you and I should exalt the king most high that is above all. I should tell you about this king. But what we need to realize about the beginning of chapter 4 is it's actually a reference to the end of chapter 4. This is a letter that has been written after chapter 4 has happened. And so it's starting with Nebuchadnezzar writing a letter out saying, I need to tell you something. I need to tell you about this God most high. But if we read it just straightforward, we would actually think that Nebuchadnezzar was actually referring to chapter 3, where he was saying, I need to tell you about this God most high, who saved these three gentlemen who were in a furnace. I put them there. The fire was really hot. It was hot enough to make a really gold statue of me. Look over there. See that? That's the statue of me. I didn't take it down. I still think it's that cool. Look at it. Let's look at it again. Worship it real quick. 
Okay, now uh, let me tell you about this other God. If it was in response to, to the idol, it would have been in response to him tearing the idol down as he said, look at this God most high. But he wasn't saying that. He was actually saying something later. Because at the end of chapter 3, he looked around and said, um, the Jews that came to join us, their God is real too. He's going to join our gods and they're all going to serve me because I'm the king. And gods are here to serve the king. In the perspective of most kings of earth, this is what Pharaoh got in trouble for. This is what a king of Babylon would get in trouble for. This is often what Rome would get in trouble for. Is a belief system that gods, we were not to anger, but they would also serve the king. That they would do things on the king's behalf. And Nebuchadnezzar is adding, at the end of chapter 3, this perspective that this God must be real as well. I will bring him honor and he will help me build my kingdom. It's been very consistent through all three of the first chapters that Nebuchadnezzar is viewing this God of Israel as a God that is powerful and trying to integrate him into his own kingdom. Because he's building a kingdom of me. So it starts with the end in mind. So what's going to happen is that at the end of chapter 4, if we went back to the beginning of chapter 4, we would know why Nebuchadnezzar is actually saying, I need you to worship this God most high. Nebuchadnezzar then in his letter says, I was sleeping at night or I had a dream at night and in the dream this great thing came to me and it distressed me again and I was disturbed. And what he saw in this dream as he brings his magicians and all of his interpreters together is that he says, I saw this dream where there was a giant tree in the middle of the world. And at this tree... You looked at the base and as you looked up, it reached to the heavens. And in the tree were all of the birds of the earth. And at the base of the tree were all the beasts of the field. And in this dream that while this tree almost touched heaven, then someone came out of heaven, a messenger, a holy one, came down and looked at me and saw me looking at the tree. And he cut off the base of the tree, but he left the stump. And he bound the stump with iron and clay and bronze. And he bound the stump. But he said, let the stump stay. But the rest of the tree fell and it would not provide for all that was in the earth. And he looked at those around him and said, tell me what this one means. A little bit interesting that it's different than Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, he wouldn't tell his magicians or his sorcerers anything that was going on. He said, tell me what the dream was and then tell me its interpretation. In this scenario, he says, this was the dream. Tell me what it means because I know last time one of you figured it out, so I trust you again. He went back to this trusting relationship with those who were supposed to be interpreting for him because someone got it right last time, which was Daniel. And so again, he looks around and everyone looks around like, I don't know, it's a tree in the woods. Oh, king, we're supposed to figure out if it makes a sound if no one is there, right? Like they don't know. They don't know what to translate it as. But here comes Daniel again, and Daniel comes into the context, and the the vision is shared with Daniel, and Daniel, it says his response is to be dismayed and overwhelmed. That he looked at it and said, if this means that, this is bad for you. So Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar the translation of the dream of saying, you, O king, are the tree. You have grown powerful 
powerful and great. And your kingdom is trying to reach to the heavens. Reference to Tower of Babel, by the way. The reference of this tree trying to reach the heaven is a reference to the tower of humans trying to get to God because they believed equality with God was just as simple as climbing a wall. And tree in the middle, right? That's garden language, create language, start of the world language in the middle of the garden is this tree of life. So here's you trying to be the tree that brings life, king, and trying to reach heaven, king, and you've done a pretty great job of building a pretty big tree, and a lot of people should be dwelling in your tree, and the beast of the earth should be eating and finding shade around the base of this creation that you've created, but you, O king, are about to be cut off and torn to pieces. And here's how it's going to happen. You're going to lose your mind. You're going to run out of this kingdom and into that field and you, for the next seven years, are going to crawl around on the ground like a beast and eat grass like an animal and have the mind of a beast and the actions of the beast. Now the beginning of chapter 4 starts to make sense when a king comes back to his senses, if this is going to happen, and says, I want to tell you about the God Most High. It sounds like someone who's lost something and is trying to gain something back. Nation, you can trust me. It wasn't my fault that I looked like a cow. It was God's fault that I looked like a cow. This is what he was doing to me. And now I don't look like a cow anymore and I don't act like a cow. And let me tell you the story. Oh, great is the God who made your king look like this. That's the beginning of chapter 4 is that Nebuchadnezzar is actually saying to the world, Hey, I'm back. And it was his fault. Your king is okay. I'm here. So Daniel is looking at the king and saying, this is his dismay. I hope this doesn't happen to you. But here's where I want to pick up the story out of the text is in verse 27. Daniel says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be accepted to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Dream, translation, warning. This doesn't have to happen. You don't have to crawl around like a cow. You don't have to eat grass from the field. You don't have to act like a beast. Instead, break the cycle of your sin. That's what, I love the word that's break in there. I encourage you to break your sin by pursuing righteousness and the prosperity of the oppressed. Enter Justin Bieber into our story. Any Justin fans here? Anyone? Anyone want to admit that? Sonny? Is it too late to say sorry? So, there he is, the Beebs. A year, uh, a little over a year ago, one of the volunteers from the organization I work with, her name is Lindsay. Lindsay. Lindsay went on a trip to California. She went to see Beebs. Poor 
Lindsay, though, it was one of those moments where Justin just wasn't going to show up to the concert that he was supposed to perform at like Staples Arena with thousands and thousands of tickets already sold. He's done that a couple of times. So she got her ticket to California, flies to California, has the ticket to see Justin. She's been like, has, she's had Bieber fever since she was like, I think born, right? I think that like she had a picture of Justin on her bottle when she was a baby. And she has grown up and at one point had millions and millions of followers on Twitter just because she would troll Justin Bieber and say things about him. She had all of these followers. It was crazy for this little, you know, a girl from Xenia, Ohio to have millions of followers and they were all, they were all about like her Justin Bieber obsession. And so she gets all the way to California, and he doesn't cancel his concert until the day before the concert. So she's out there doing the, the, the touristy thing, and then she finds out that Justin has canceled his concert because instead he wants to go to church. His friend Judah Smith, who has a church in California, was doing like a, a Jesus-y concert at the same time, and Justin was like, I can't perform tonight. I need to go to that concert. And so he goes to attend. Well, my friend Lindsay, instead of going, oh no, do I get my money back? She just decided, who would know where Justin is and let's find him and let's at least see him before we come home. So in her mind, she thinks we should go to Hollywood. She also follows Judah Smith. So she's like, I know where that conference is. I should just stake out the conference. So she goes to stake out the conference, and then she finds out that one of her friends actually knows one of the paparazzi that's staking out the conference, too, to try to find Justin. So they text and say, hey, do you know where Justin might be? And they're like, yeah, he's at this restaurant just outside the concert eating right now. We're trying to take some photos of him. Here's the address. So they send the address. So then Lindsay and her friend get in their car in their most Justin bieber outfits as they could possibly get, so... They weren't wearing very many clothes. And they go down. And as they go down, they enter and they're like, oh, there's Justin and there's Judah and there's like five other people. And so they start to walk up to this area and then TMZ shows up. And as Justin goes to get in his Humvee with Judah for them to go back to the, like, the Jesus thing, there's Lindsay creeping right behind Justin with like her face like it's almost like it was just like a floating face because you couldn't see the rest of her but there's Justin and then there's Lindsay and she's just like and I know that it happened because she then sent out the TMZ video to the world she's like look there's me behind Justin and I'm like there's you with the craziest eyes of any person I have seen in a really long time because she's just like looking at him like hey we're here, but we're not really here. Just ignore us, Justin. And then the comments on her account were just ridiculous. Of, oh, I can't believe that you saw him. I'm like, you, you were in the space of humanity with another human. He didn't talk to you. He didn't give you a kiss on the cheek. He didn't invite you into the Humvee. He didn't take you to his Jesus concert. You just happened to be standing behind him. And thousands and thousands of people now think that you're the coolest person in the world. And she would show the video over and over and over and over and over. Look, there's me on TMZ. Look, there's me on TMZ again. And I remember watching that whole thing going, I'm not sure if I want to be proud of you for like your ambition. 
or just ashamed because you couldn't see in any moment how dehumanizing that is for a guy who said, I'm kind of a mess right now. I can't even do my concert. I kind of want to go hang out with the people that know Jesus around me and just be with them. And you became one of those people that made that impossible for him. I wasn't sure how I felt. The more I processed it, I'm like, I kind of know how I feel now. And it was because of this, because the other guy in that picture, his name is Scooter. (laughs) There you go. Anyone seen this guy before? Anyone recognize him? His name is Scooter Braun. Amazing story of a guy. He is Justin Bieber's manager. He's also Ariana Grande's manager. This guy makes a lot of money, right? And he manages a lot of artists. He started throwing parties in Atlanta back in the 90s and inviting people like Ludacris to his parties. And then they thought he was so cool, so then they turned him into a manager. I didn't know anything about Scooter Braun until I was listening to a podcast the other day because I like basketball and I like listening to sports podcasts. And he was being interviewed by a sports podcaster by the name of Bill Simmons. And they were talking about hip hop and the NBA and how these two things just are so connected to each other. And then they were talking about Fergie's national anthem for the NBA All-Star Game and how that should never be allowed to happen again. If you haven't listened to it, just go ahead and check it out later. It's, it's, it's something. Um, she was trying to do her best. Marilyn Monroe is what she said later. Maybe Marilyn Manson. Well, yeah. You can watch. Don't judge. Just listen for your enjoyment and see how the national anthem worked out there. And so as Scooter Braun is doing this interview, Bill Simmons asks him a question and says, So what about Justin? That's, that's kind of how he says the He's like, So what about Justin? And... Scooter Braun's like, oh, 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 you're talking about the breakdown, right? And Bill's like, well, I just want to know how he's doing. We're all worried. And he's like, you're talking about 2014 when he lost his mind. And he threw away millions and millions of dollars in like a two-week period. And he had access to $500 million of, of just cash that he could have just done whatever he wanted with. He was like, Bill's like, yeah, yeah, that time, like then. Yeah, I want to know. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of do too. Like, huh, interesting. As his manager, what was that like for you? And Scooter in the, in the interview says, there wasn't a night that I didn't make sure my phone was charged and under my pillow because I thought for sure I was going to wake up to a call from a police officer telling me that Justin was dead. He was like, the Justin that I knew didn't exist at that point. He wasn't in there. He was gone. And this was what he then said as the next step. He said, because we figured out later there was something happening to Justin that none of us could control. And when Simmons asked the follow-up question of saying, what is it? Scooter's response was, we figured out after we started talking with our friends and Justin started making his way back, humans aren't meant to be worshipped. They can't handle the pressure. Humans are meant to serve. So if you're going to be a celebrity, you have to figure out an atmosphere to serve in because this idolatry will drive you crazy and will drive you mad. And at the time I was studying Daniel for this series while I'm listening to this going, yes, 
Yes, that's Nebuchadnezzar. Yes, that's the warning that is being given to this king by Daniel of saying, if you keep building this kingdom that has an idol of you in the middle and you keep demanding that an entire nation bow and worship you and you keep walking around and looking at this world and saying, this is mine. Oh, you have a really cool God. Let me see how he can serve me. If you keep doing that, you're going to lose your mind and be in the field like the cows. Because we were not meant to be worshipped. We can't handle the pressure. And for me, I thought, I'm never going to have a a statue. Steve might someday. Like, Cece, you might. No, they won't. Um, I'm never going to have a statue. But who do I worship? Who am I creating an impossible scenario for? Is it my wife? Is it my kids? Are my friends? Is there someone in that spiritual space for me? Is there a is there an athlete? It used to be Kentucky basketball, but then this season. Who am I putting on that pedestal? And not listening to the warning about to say, humans are not made to be worshipped. If you put them up there, they will fall. They will be broken. And this is the warning that Daniel is giving to Nebuchadnezzar and saying, if you would just come down off of the pedestal and you would do things in righteousness, kingdom of us, I am righteous not because it's what best it's what's best for me and my kingdom. I'm righteous because it's what is best for us and our kingdom that we're serving on behalf of God. And if you will pursue the oppressed. And really all that Daniel is telling him in this verse is... Um, Here's in one verse, this is what I've learned, being royalty in the kingdom of Israel, being exiled into your kingdom. The only two things I've done here. Since you cast me into this slavery of your kingdom, I've tried to be righteous, and I've tried to help those who are being oppressed in your kingdom. And God is with me. All you've done is unrighteous acts of chaos and the building of your own kingdom. And he keeps showing up to you in dreams and telling you how broken you are. So Daniel is really just giving his own story, the story of us, into the story of me and saying, if you pursue righteousness and help the oppressed, God brings blessing. He overcomes exile. He will change your story. But when we bring our story to the forefront, it just creates the kingdom of me. And if you fast forward to the end, one note before we fast forward to the end. It says in verse 28, this all came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Key verse right there. For Nebuchadnezzar's demise, it happened right in that. He's walking on the roof. And I'm not sure if you've connected in history that these um, hanging gardens of Babylon would have been the thing that Nebuchadnezzar saw when he's walking on his roof just before he glorified himself in such a way that it caused God to go, okay, it's time. It's time for me to take this away from you. Because 
Nebuchadnezzar is known for creating one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He walked on his roof and saw these things that were these gardens that other historians would write about and say, oh, the hanging gardens of Babylon. Were they really hanging? No. But they looked like they were hanging because he had done such an immaculate job of creating these gardens that looked like they were hanging off of the buildings. What's interesting in this particular, in this particular photo is you have the hanging gardens of, of Babylon and then you have a tower of Babel that's broken in the background. Because there was this perception of old storytelling to say, when you start looking at this and celebrating all that you've built in this, you end up with a future that looks like that. It was in a moment where he was just walking around and looking at all that he had built. That Nebuchadnezzar doted on himself by saying, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And it said, While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. When Nebuchadnezzar was trapped into the kingdom of me, He could not take any of the resources that he was amazing at managing and leading and creating and invest them into the kingdom of us. And so for, it says a season of seven, it's interpreted as seven years, but really the word seven in Hebrew would just mean this, which I think is more important than seven years. Seven would be completion. So it would say, Nebuchadnezzar prowled around like an animal until it was done. Until it was out. Until it was out of the system. Until humility had overcome pride. Until the roaming around on this ground was so bad that he would long for God to be building his kingdom. And it said to a season of completion. Now maybe that was seven years. Could you imagine that it took someone seven years because even in their beast-like mind they're looking around going, I'm the best cow out here. There is no cow like me, right? Look, I made them all eat more chicken. It's like, we don't know why it took so long or how it took so long, except that it took a long period of time to get to a place of completion. But the story, I don't believe the story ends well, because it says then, in verse 34, we'll skip ahead to that. It says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes. So he's back to writing his own letter. I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And at the same time that my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. Let me pause right there. You hear it? It's coming back in. 
He can't stay away from himself. It says, at the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me out, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven, for all His works are right and His ways are just, and those who walk in pride He is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar's last words in his story, his last letter that goes out to everyone, is, I got it. He wanted to humble me so that I would appreciate what He gave for me so that then I could get back and I could take more of it to build more of me. What a mess. What a warning. God does not, in here, God does not necessarily take all resources from everyone just because he's against them. But he does warn and encourage everyone what might happen if they don't utilize his resources on his behalf. So Nebuchadnezzar starts with the ending and says, I wanted to write you all a letter. Here is the God most high, and here's where he, I went, and now I'm back, and I'm humbled so that I can have more stuff to build more for our kingdom. And the kingdom of me was still there. But there was this still voice, this small voice standing next to him, and his name was Daniel, and he's saying, but... What if we broke that cycle and we pursued righteousness and we stood on behalf of the oppressed? What would that kingdom look like? And can we be part of it? For me, Daniel 4 ends with the decision, do I want to be humbled and pursue the kingdom of me anyway? Or do I want to be righteous and listen for oppression around me and enter into it. Because in the midst of this kingdom of me in 2018, there is a kingdom of us that continues to form and to be established. And it helps the oppressed every day. Let's pray together. Father, you teach me so much through kings like Nebuchadnezzar and celebrities like Justin Bieber. I thank you for their stories. I thank you that so far from what I've read about either one, you never gave up on either. But that you invited both into the kingdom of us. And this morning I just end simply by saying, forgive me for the unrighteous ways that I've pursued the kingdom of me. And let my eyes see oppression. And let my ears hear its cry. That I would find the kingdom of us in the midst of those sights and sounds. Give me the courage to follow that path. Instead of the one that's established on my accolades It's in your name that we pray. Amen.